Uh, if you have your Bible, let me invite you to pull it out. We are headed back to the book of Acts, and this morning we will cover the vast majority of Acts chapter 16, and so you can begin opening there now. Uh, in a series we have titled, The Power to Change the World, that we believe and know by faith that Jesus is the power to change and to save the world, and we want the entire world, we want our entire city, our state, our nation to know about that good news. Um, if you come this morning and you would say, I'm not a believer, but I've been around Christians often, and I find that they seem to sort of want to push this, this gospel, this Jesus stuff on me, why is it that Christians are always wanting to talk to me about Jesus and, and convert me? Do they really want to convert me? Yes. Yes, we do. Um, a little bit. Um, what do we mean by that? We mean um, we're so much better than you that we think that you need to be like us. No. Um, what we mean is Jesus is so much better than anybody or anything that you will ever experience. And the grace that we have experienced in our own lives, we want everyone to experience that same grace. And so we can't help but talk about Jesus and how good he is because of what he's done for us and what he continues to do for us, the love and the grace and the power that he has for our lives. We want everybody to know about it. We want the city of Palm Bay to be changed from the inside out because of that same goodness and grace of Jesus. Um, this morning, as we walk through Acts 16, we'll see that, that similar theme, and we're going to see it really through three lenses as we walk through Acts 16. We're going to see as, as believers join into God's mission, what he is doing, we're going to see it renews the Holy Spirit's power. We're going to see that it does lead to new believers. And third and finally, we're going to see that it leads to new churches. And so let me open us in prayer, and then we will walk through this large chapter in pieces this morning as we address those three applications. Let me open us in a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We humble ourselves before it. We thank you that in it contained is your truth and your grace. Father, we are deeply in need of you in every single way, Father. Regardless of what we brought in here, good, bad, or indifferent this morning, we are so desperate for you. Lord, we thank you that your word is inerrant and infallible. We thank you that salvation is available today in Jesus Christ, that there is hope and life in Jesus Christ this morning. And so we anticipate that this morning as we open your word to hear from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So three applications this morning. Number one is this, if you're taking notes, joining God's mission of salvation brings, first of all, renewal of the Holy Spirit's authority. That was a mouthful. Joining God's mission of salvation brings renewal of the Holy Spirit's authority. And we're going to see this here first in verses 6 through 12 of chapter 16. Again, we're going to cover a lot of ground here in Acts 16 this morning. Hear the word of the, of the Lord now. <clears throat> this is verse 6 through 12. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia 
and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. If I was in geography class, I would have just gotten an A plus for having pronounced all of those names correctly. Um, three things that we're going to see here just in relation to the Holy Spirit's power. The first is this. The Holy Spirit returns us always to his plan. <clears throat> They're all going to begin with P, by the way. The Holy Spirit always returns us to his plan. Uh, a question that we should constantly ask ourselves in our Christian life is this. Am I holding on tighter to what the Holy Spirit says or onto my own plan? Am I holding on to, to the Holy Spirit's vision for my life, or am I holding on to my own vision and intentions for my life? We, we have this tendency to go, my way, God. I have it figured out. I know what I'm doing. And, and we can, if we step back, we go, man, that's ridiculous to think the, in those terms towards the Lord. Um, there is a document that was written, re, written recently called the Church Planting Manifesto. It is not scripture, but it's based out of scripture, and it's basically 12 sort of statements about as we approach God's mission of salvation here on earth and we plant new churches, these are sort of the fundamental rules of the road for us. And I just want to read to you number one. It's a beautiful statement. They say this, prayer and obedience to the Holy Spirit in light of the word of God take priority over systems and structures. You get the heartbeat behind that? You know, we, we have plans, and that's good. We have systems, and that's great, and structures. But it all is in submission to praying and seeking the Lord's leading as revealed in the Word of God. Uh, as that comes to joining God's mission for Alana and I personally, uh, we sense the, the call to church planting um, eight years ago now. It's been eight years. Um, a short, amazing, uh, perfect, no down moments, eight years, by the way. Um, and we thought, eight years ago, we thought, we're ready, we're ready to go right here and now, no question. And so we began gathering believers, and some of you were with us when we did this, up in the Rockledge Vieira area, and uh, the Holy Spirit, like in this passage, uh, said no. Said, you're not ready, this is not the plan that I have for you. And at the time, we couldn't really see, you know, God's ultimate plan or vision. But now looking back, as in all things, we see God's faithfulness in this rearview mirror going, man, God knew what he was doing all along. And in his perfect timing, he redirected us to the city of Pombe, a city that I grew up in and has always been my heartbeat. And, and so we got here. And as soon as we got here in Pombe, everything was easy. Yeah. Just kidding. Um, if you were with us back, back in the day, you recall that we began searching for where is a location, a facility that we can hold worship services. And we actually, I reached out to 12 different places, some public schools, uh, some storefronts, a variety pack. And in God's providence, we got the answer, no, 12 times in a row, including Bayside High School at the time said, you know, no. Um, we, we had various responses to why that was, but they just said no. And so um, now looking back, I'm learning less and less to have a panic attack, to not have a panic attack, sorry, when my plan doesn't seem to orchestrate and to go, God has a plan, God has a purpose, there is a vision that he is unfolding, and if I don't like the way that it's going, all I have to do is the same thing I ever need to do, which is trust in him, in his plan. The Holy Spirit always returns us to his plan. Um, he also always returns us to his power. God here sends his vision, a man of Macedonia. We don't know who he was, but God sends this vision of a man of Macedonia who cries out to Paul in this vision and says, help us. And their response immediately was, yes, we will do that. 
The Holy Spirit led them, by the way, to the biggest city in all of this country of Macedonia, a city called Philippi. God knew what he was doing by his power. And he brought them to where God already knew there were people that were there that were ready to hear and receive the gospel. And we're going to see that here in Acts 16. And as we think about ourselves, we ought to ask the same question. Well, who is your man of Macedonia? Not that you will necessarily have a vision in the night, but you will walk past people every day who need to hear and receive the good news of the gospel. Where is your Philippi? What is the particular city that God has called you to to share the good news of the gospel with others? He is calling you out of your comfort and out of your plan and out of your normal to trust in his way beyond normal, his way better, uh, and by his Holy Spirit's leading that we will see new believers and new churches as a result, like here in Acts 16. When did they acknowledge the Holy Spirit's direction and authority, and when did they obey? Immediately is the word that Scripture uses. Uh, Notice that they didn't hold a debate. They didn't form a committee. Um, They did not take any votes. They didn't consult their calendar. They didn't even put together one of those really cool pros and cons lists. They just went, and they renewed their commitment to the authority of the Holy Spirit over their lives and ministry. So it was the Holy Spirit's plan, power. It was also the Holy Spirit returning them to his priorities. See, because in life, we so often can sort of get caught up in what is my priority? What do I need to do and experience today? But the Holy Spirit always brings us back to God's priorities. Um, I once discipled a new believer, and we were going through the book of Romans chapter and verse, and he asked me a very good question. He said, well, how do I know when the Holy Spirit is talking to me? I thought, well, that's a good question, dude. Let me think about that one. And and here's the reality that we see uh, yet again here in Acts 16 and throughout Old and New Testament. The Holy Spirit can and does lead us and guide us, but it is always spoken to us directly through his word and prayer. God has spoken fully and clearly through the scriptures. And so to be very clear, prayer is us talking to God. And the word of God, the 66 books of the Bible, are God speaking to us. And the Holy Spirit speaks, says John 14 and 15, what Jesus has given him to speak, his word. So we've got to renew our priority of prayer renew our priority of the Word of God, and renew our being led by His Holy Spirit. If you remember all the way at the very beginning of Acts chapter 1, when we started many months ago, it began with 120 average Joe Christians, and those average Joe Christians saw Jesus resurrect from the dead, right? We looked last week on Easter Sunday at the end of Luke chapter 24, where the resurrection takes place. And the last words that Jesus says, the resurrected Jesus, he says, wait, wait until I send the Holy Spirit to you and then go. As that is in the past, we have been given the Holy Spirit. And so the word to us from the Lord is go. The Great Commission continues to say, go and share the good news of the gospel and make disciples of all nations, ordinary believers, average Joe Christians who are sharing the good news of the gospel and joining God's mission of salvation here on earth. And they go, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and we join in that, in the renewal of the Holy Spirit's power. Number two, now we see the payoff begin to take place. Number two is this, and we'll see this in verses 13 all the way through 35, if you've got your Bible. Number two is joining God's mission of salvation brings new believers. 
It brings new believers. Let's look at the first part of this next section of the story in Acts 16. I'm going to read to his verses 13 through 15. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. You notice that the scripture here switches to a first person plural. That's because Luke, the writer of Luke and the writer of Acts, is along with Paul on this missionary journey. Here, though, we've got uh, what I'm going to call new believer number one, and there are three new believers that we're going to see come to Christ, at least three new believers who come to Christ by name here in this story. And I'm going to describe Lydia to you as a spiritually interested person. Lydia is a spiritually interested person. The Bible describes her as a worshiper of God. Um, In the most complimentary sense, she is a religious person, but she doesn't yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior. How many people do you know, or how many people would you say are in our city that are this? They're spiritually interested people. If you began a conversation about Jesus with them, they would have questions and they would be interested. They recognize the spiritual aspect of life, but they don't yet know Jesus. Maybe they grew up in church but left over some sort of an experience, but but they're willing to investigate the scriptures with you about Jesus. Uh, It's an encouragement to me that what takes place here is the Bible says that they went outside. This this was their mission strategy. They went outside and they sat down and they began to talk. Let that encourage you this morning. You do not have to have a seminary degree to sit down. They went outside, they sat down, and they began to talk. Um, Every time that I'm in public with my wife, I realize that she is talking to somebody who we've never met before, and inviting them to our church, inviting them into our home. She is great at it. Um, It just comes out of her because that Christ is what is in her, and it comes out, and we all can, can live that same way because if we've experienced the good news, we can't help but talk about it, and we want people to know that same good news. And an invite to church, an invite to home, an invite to investigate the book of John, maybe, are easy ways to sit down and talk. Notice our part, but notice uh, the Lord's part. It says that the Lord opened her heart. That takes the pressure off of you and me. here's, Here's the deal. I can't change anybody's heart. I've tried. It doesn't work. I can't even change my own heart. The Holy Spirit moves first in every single heart who will come to him in faith. His effectual call is his work of grace in our lives that moves us to even believe. And so the Holy Spirit, again, is at work. Paul does his part, and he shares, and Lydia comes to faith. And here it says that she and her entire household were baptized that very day. So there's this amazing moment of celebrating what has happened inwardly. She has come to faith, and they they mark her as, as a part of the church family, her and her household. By the way, this is one of three household baptisms that we see here just in the book of Acts. Lydia, here in the same passage, we're going to see the Philippian jailer in a couple minutes. And earlier in Acts 10, we saw Cornelius in each 
you have the head of the household becoming a believer explicitly. It doesn't tell us that who else in the household became a believer or didn't become a believer, but we recognize that in households in that day and age, that meant parents, grandparents, kids, even servants, those, everybody who was in the household, it says they were all baptized. Again, because baptism is a sign and a seal of our entrance into God's covenant family. Baptism does not save anybody. It is an outward symbol of an inward truth. But you see whole families baptized, even as at least one, probably many in the family became believers. The second person that we see, we've got the spiritually interested person. Now we've got the, what I'm going to call the enslaved person. This is verses 16 through 21. We see an enslaved, spiritually and physically, an enslaved person. This is a pretty shocking moment here in this passage. Listen to verses 16 through 21. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. That's true. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone... They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. What a lie. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Yeah, saving people. Um, This girl is, first of all, spiritually enslaved. She is most likely a teenage girl. She is clearly possessed by a demon or multiple demons that enable her, in this case, to fortune tell. She is also physically enslaved. They are, her owners, just a terrible term in itself, are using and abusing her. This is very much modern-day human trafficking taking place. But the unexpected thing is this. Paul and Silas were headed to a place of prayer. They were not expecting to meet this girl, but the Holy Spirit brought them to her first. Um, J.D. Greer, uh, of this passage, he says, this is yet another reason why we know that the Bible is true, because it tells us the truth about how messed up God's people are. Did you notice the way that Paul reacted? I'm putting myself in his shoes. There's a demon-possessed girl screaming at me for days. What was that like? And the Bible gives us an honest here. It says, Paul moved in his heart with compassion. (laughs) Paul, greatly annoyed. (laughs) Even at your worst, God can use you for his mission of grace and salvation. Uh, I love the phrase, right? God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. You and me, we are the crooked stick. And what's taking place here is God's grace, because at the name of Jesus, she becomes free from all of those evil spirits and evil men, because Jesus has already conquered sin, Satan, and death, and here he is just sweeping up the mess. Our own city is filled with people who physically and spiritually, in one way or another, are enslaved to a variety of things. People who are held captive to the power and the effects of sin, the marginalized, the at risk, the trafficked, those who are possessed by demons even today. This girl was not headed to the prayer meeting. 
okay? They were on their way to this, this scheduled prayer meeting. Understand, this girl was not on her way to the prayer meeting. There are many, many people in our city that if you want to reach them, you have to go to them. You have to find them. You have to love them where they are at, and you have to be willing to step into the mess. All of us are a mess. God's grace begins to work in that mess, but you had to, they had to go to where she was at. How many in our city have this exact same story? How many in our church, by the way, have this same story? In one phase or another, I was a mess. <laughs> I was doing all kinds of dumb stuff that I should not have been doing. I was addicted to this. I was making these poor decisions. I was treating these people this way. And God and his grace and mercy changed my life. And we can share that same story, that same good news with others. New believer number three. As we continue through this passage, new believer number three, I'm going to call a secular person, a secular person. This is our longest chunk of scripture, so bear with me. This is verses 22 through 34. Picking up where we left off, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. What did they do? They saved a little girl. Verse 23. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, upon Paul and Silas, uh, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This guy, at the start of the story, is as secular as they come. Roman jails were typically run by uh, semi-retired, former, basically, Marines in the Roman army. These guys are battle-hardened, and they are also very much not headed to the prayer meeting. Uh, Believer, your suffering for Christ is not in vain. When you suffer for the name of Jesus, when you are criticized for sharing about Christ, when you are attacked in one way or another, it is not a waste. God sees it, God loves you and is with you in it, and he will use it for your good and his glory and the furtherance of his mission of salvation. So here, Paul and Silas are publicly stripped and beaten with a cane. They did nothing wrong. In fact, what they did was incredibly right. The injustice of the scene is overwhelming. 
And next, they are now, they're now in a prison, sitting in what we know would have been raw sewage, with their legs locked in the stocks. There's been no trial, there's been no verdict, and there's been no sentence. They are innocent, and they are just in prison, experiencing the grossness of this dark, dank, horrible prison. I'm thinking of next year for our uh, Easter photo booth of recreating the Act 16 uh, moment out there. So we could have the kids kind of put their legs in stocks and we'll get some real raw sewage and you can sit in that and we'll even have Eric's going to come out with the cane and, and hit people just to, no? Okay. That's why we need elders at the church, to be able to help me recognize when I have a terrible ministry idea. We're not going to do that. I just thought I'd throw it out there. Um, anyway, to evangelize, to church plant, to love people where they're at is frontline fighting. That's the, the reason that Jesus in Matthew 16, he describes the picture of the church, believers, ordinary average Joe Christians, and it says that they are, they are breaking and climbing over the gates of hell to reach people and to get them out of hell. That is the picture that Jesus gives us of what our role is here on earth, and that's what's taking place in Acts 16. And then it says, at midnight, they, they're singing and worshiping God. Again, put yourself in that situation. Life stinks real hard at that moment. And what are they doing? They're worshiping God. If in Christ alone had been written yet, I'm confident they would be in there jamming to some in Christ alone. They are singing and praising God. They respond to pain and suffering and persecution and justice by loudly proclaiming and remembering in their heart and soul, who is Jesus and what has he done for me? And it says that the prisoners and the prison guard are all listening. They're evangelizing by trusting Jesus and their suffering, and, and so can we. And then God's power shows up. The, the mission of salvation shows up. Physically, it's manifested as God sends an earthquake and rips open this prison, even as he does in the life of every single person who gives their life and faith to Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. Charles Wesley wrote the hymn, and he says this, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Paul gets it, because Paul was a former murderer of Christians, and Jesus forgave him his sin and broke him free of the, the chains of his own ugliness and sin. And Paul wants other people to know it. He endured a physical chain so that this secular person, this jailer, could be made free. And so the question for every single one of us is, if you've never experienced it, what about you? Do you want to be free? Do you want to experience freedom from sin, freedom from brokenness, freedom from your shame, freedom from the things that nobody else knows about? Because if they knew them about you, they would never talk to you again, or so you think. Jesus says, I have come to bring freedom. How did he do it? Well, God the Father, this, picture, this, this story is a beautiful picture of it because God has the right to put us in a prison as well. God has the right to put every single one of us in a spiritual prison called hell, a very real place that we deserve because of our sins. This is not just a story for then, it is a story for now. But God the Father sent the only one who could make us free in our place. God sent Jesus to die the death that we deserved to not just go to prison on our behalf, but to, to face the death penalty for sins that he did not commit. Paul and Silas, in one sense, were innocent, but Jesus, in every sense, was innocent. And he went to the cross to pay for my sin and for yours. 
He was stripped. He was beaten with rods. And he was killed on a cross for you to make you free. John 8, 36 says, if the son has set you free, then you are free indeed. And that's good news for today for anyone like this secular jail, jailer who chose to believe that very day. Earthly speaking again, Paul says, don't harm yourself. Remember, this is the guy who just beat the trash out of Paul and Silas. He has the perfect chance at, at revenge or sort of street justice. Man, let the rest of those prisoners just beat this guy up. Or let the Roman soldiers who catch him failing at his duty kill him. Paul is the only one who can save him. And Paul chooses mercy over justice and shares the gospel with the man instead. Who do you have in your life that you would love to see justice hit them? But you can choose instead to, to show the same mercy that Jesus showed you. The jailer heard them worshiping, and it impacted him. The jailer saw God's power, this, this earthquake, take place. The jailer saw them choose to stay in prison, and the result of all of these witnesses, all of these testimonies, is he stops. The Holy Spirit has convicted him, and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul doesn't say, be a better person. He doesn't say, try harder. He says, put your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and you will be saved. And that promise is for you and your household. Not that if you believe, then everybody else automatically gets saved, but that the, the offer is made to all people. You can't do anything. Jesus has already done it on your behalf. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Third and finally, joining God's mission of salvation brings new churches. So we've seen a renewal of the Holy Spirit's authority in our lives. We've seen new believers. And now just in verse 40, at the very end of this chapter, we get this, this nugget that, that teaches us that joining God's mission of salvation brings new churches. They are always tied, new believers and new churches. So verse 40 says this, after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left, and they left because they continued on with their church planting. But if we step back and see what is, what is the seed that is here in verse 40 that is going to sprout by the Holy Spirit's power, God's mission of salvation always leads to new believers, and now it will lead to new churches. They are having church right here in Lydia's house, but it doesn't stop there. See, because 10 years later, Paul is going to write a letter to the church at Philippi. Out of those miraculous moments in the Holy Spirit's power, a church, a full-blown church is going to arrive, and that is the book, the letter to the Philippians that Paul writes 10 years later to this now established church. So if you've got your, your, your actual physical paper Bible, I suppose you could do it on your phone as well, but go back to the table of contents for just a second. Let's, let's assess here. Go to the, the New Testament list of the books of the Bible, and let's see what we see here just real quick looking at what's taking place. I want you to see the reality of what, what's happening here in verse 40 and how it's this cascading effect. What do we have first in the New Testament? What are our first four books? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So four gospels, four stories of the good news of Jesus, his, his life, his death, his resurrection. Then what do we get? 
Acts. And we spent the last nine months going through Acts, and, and there's these stories of the Holy Spirit dominating the scene, salvation coming to people, conversions, people coming to Christ, and new churches planted. And then what do we get? We get a whole bunch of books in a row, and they're all letters written primarily, but not exclusively, by Paul. So we get Romans, if you look. And then we get First and Second Corinthians. And we get Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians. These are all letters written by Paul to new church plants. That is the ongoing story here of the New Testament, that as the gospel has come and the Holy Spirit has manifested, that New believers are established, and as a result, they gather together in new local churches that plant more churches, that plant more churches, that disciple new believers, that disciple more new believers. That is the, whole, the New Testament plan. When did it end? The day Jesus will come to take us home is when it will end. You and I are a part of the same story ongoing of Acts in our life today. Um, we are a part of a network called the Florida Church Planting Network that is essentially the middle section of Florida is a network of, of our churches, PCA churches, that are seeking to plant more churches. Uh, in our Presbyterian lingo, they, they are broken up geographically into four presbyteries. So we are the North Florida Presbytery. We personally are in the Central Florida Presbytery. There's Southwest Presbytery and Sun Coast Presbytery. It makes up 42 counties in Florida. In that just sort of central layer of Florida, did you know, before COVID and everything that's happened, there are 13 and a half million people just in this center section of Florida. It is 4.1% of the entire United States population it is right here, from here to Disney and back. Uh, this, this area right here, 4.1% of the United States. In that area presently, we have 56 PCA churches. So that would be one church for every 241,201 people. It's not one of my favorite statistics, right? The fields are white for the harvest. That's what Jesus told us. Um, globally, if we think outside of Florida and outside of the United States, we have as a church, we have church planting partners. We call them our island partners, and we don't identify where they are for their own protection, but our island partners are doing the same thing. They are church planting. They have this last month been able to reopen after 23 months of lockdown as a function of COVID in their country, but they did not stop sharing the gospel, and they did not stop planting new churches. What they did have was a massive humanitarian crisis, and so our church has been a part of sending barges of food to them. Um, to date, 3,223 people have been fed from the food that you helped provide to get down there as a practical example of the reality of the good news of the gospel. So this is church plants in that country meeting physical needs so that they can share about spiritual needs. Uh, we're going to be sending a small team down there in January as a vision trip to see how we can get back into that, their lives and their church planting as well as, as we come out of what has been the, the nature of COVID for the last several years. Their strategic goal was to plant 10 uh, church plants in the 10 key cities in their country, and, and they're nearly there. And so they're going, they're saying, Holy Spirit, what is next for us? Uh, I guarantee you the answer, like us, is not shut it down. It, it's to continue and to keep going. Uh, do we need more churches in America? Yes. Do we need more churches in Brevard County? Yes. 
Do we need more churches in Palm Bay? Yes. 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 Because the example of the New Testament that we've just seen and the Great Commission says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And there is no stop. The stop is when we see Jesus face to face in heaven. But also, let me add this other motivational fact, and that is that the church, uh, the, the church in America has in many, many ways forgotten the realities of what we see right here this morning in Acts chapter 16. The church in America, not every church, but many churches have forgotten the reality that God's word is true and authoritative. We have forgotten that the gospel really does save people from a very real place called hell. We have forgotten that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We've forgotten that the Holy Spirit is real and powerful and active and speaks the truth to us every day. We've forgotten that that theology and the truth of exactly what the scripture tells us about who God is and his plan for our lives, that it matters. I'll give you one snapshot of an example. This is the president of Union Seminary who was interviewed a couple Easter's ago and the story was of course featured in the New York Times. Uh, Here's a nugget for you. Uh, This person says this, when you look in the gospels, the stories are all over the place. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. Those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves, Jones said. Crucifixion is not something that God is orchestrating from upstairs. The pervasive idea of an abusive godfather who sends his own kid to the cross so God could forgive people is nuts. For me, the cross is an enactment of our human hatred. But what happens on Easter is the triumph of love in the midst of suffering. Isn't that reason for hope? Asked what happens when people die, Jones responded, I don't know. There may be something, there may be nothing. My faith is not tied to some divine promise about the afterlife. Guys, my faith is absolutely and unequivocally tied to Jesus' promise of an afterlife in a very real place called heaven. The Apostle Paul says if we deny the resurrection, our faith is a waste of time. That is the reality of the church, quote unquote, as loose of a term as I can use, in America. And so when we come back to the scripture and we come back to the reality of the gospel of grace, it changes us and invites us to be a part of reestablishing the Holy Spirit's authority in our lives. That we want to see new believers come to Christ and we want to see new churches planted. Um, We did not plant New City Church because we think that we have cornered the market on worship or on kids ministry, although our kids director is top-notch, the best of the best, no question about it. We planted this church here three years ago, and we want to be a part of continuing to plant churches in this city, county, nation, and world, because if you just take Brevard County, before COVID, it was 589,000 people. We understand we are not the only kids on the block, right? There are lots of evangelical churches who lift high the name of Jesus in our county, but if you count up the attendance on any given Sunday for Brevard County, you cannot even make it to 10% of our population, And attendance at church does not equal salvation, does it? Not in any way, shape, or form. The fields are white for the harvest. I just want to read to you Revelation 21 as a guide as we head out. This is the reason that we have named our church New City Church. We love this passage. Hear Revelation 21 again and let it warm your heart afresh. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, 
and he will dwell with them. They will be with his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything we want to see Palm Bay be a new city changed by the gospel forever and ever. We want to see every tribe, tongue, and nation experience new life and new hope and salvation in Jesus Christ. And the way that God has prescribed that we get there is Acts 16. Ordinary believers obeying the Holy Spirit, and by his power we see new believers and new churches. Amen? Let's pray together.